You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, the Irish 14 show that's critical but not cynical. I'm Keen, and as usual, I'm reporting from somewhere in the southeast of Ireland, uh, not actually in the cabin in the woods right now, as it is a rather a late autumn evening, and I'm out on a skywatch. That's what they used to call um, when you were out for the night looking for UFOs, basically, and um, sort of thing I used to read about, usually from like the British UFO scene from the 70s where it did seem to be a little bit of a social thing where you would meet your friends on top of a hill somewhere cold in the winter when viewing conditions were good and the nights were long and you'd wrap up warm and um, probably be disappointed by not seeing anything but I've always wanted to do it so here I am and it's cold night I'm wearing a big coat and my beer for this episode is delightful this is 12 acres brewing and it's called it's a hazy IPA and these guys are from Killishin in County Leash. Happy to report it is positively delightful. Even the fact that it's cold and making me colder is not uh, taking away from the experience. So this episode, suitably enough, is all about the Betty and Barney Hill case. And who else could I ask to speak with me on this but uh, Dr. Edward Guimont. Always delighted to have him back. And this was a really, really fun conversation to have Hopefully you enjoy it as well. Uh, I've covered this story before uh, and it's wonderful to be able to go back to it in better depth and with uh, folks who have better knowledge than I did all those years ago when I spoke about the coming of the Greys. Uh, episodes I'm still pleased with, I'm proud of, I did my best with them, I think they're worth a listen, but um, I think we've upped the game now and hopefully you enjoy this as much as I did. So... Uh, as always, folks, you can say thanks over on buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. Thanks to Stellar Blue Galaxy, who did so once again, and I'll be speaking more about that at the end of the show. Also, you can find me over on Instagram, where I am wide underscore Atlantic underscore weird. And I'm still on Twitter for now. Things are looking a bit weird there. I'm just waiting and seeing what's really going to change. Um, but for now, you can find me over there. I'm at Strange Ireland. Okay. Betty and Barney Hill, UFO Abductions, with Dr. Edward Guimont. Here we go. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body... Okay, so uh, I'm here with um, Dr. Edward Guimont once again. Well, very welcome back to the pod. Um, just so folks know, at home I am recording not in the usual spot. I'm out traveling, so I've got my traveling kit with me. So if anything sounds a little different, or if you hear any strange sounds in the background, it's just because I'm on my my B kit uh, of equipment. <laughs> so um, uh, Edward, if you'd like to introduce yourself, just in case um, folks are are hearing you for the first time on this show. Or otherwise, um, how do you like to describe yourself these days? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm Dr. Edward Guimont. I'm assistant professor of world history at Bristol Community College in Fall River, Massachusetts. Uh, despite being a professor of world history, it's funny. When I was uh, applying for the job, one of the possible titles was a professor of global history, which I thought would have been more appropriate because I'm currently working on a book on the history of the flat earth movement in the British empire, which tentatively has been titled the flat earth, the global history. So I figure what better role of a world historian to tackle that. Uh, I've also uh, co-written with Horace Smith, a book titled uh, when the stars are right, HP Lovecraft and astronomy, which we actually are uh, by the time this comes out, we will have finished doing all the proofreading for sent it back. And it is scheduled uh, 
to be released summer 2023 from Hippocampus Press. So very excited to have that out. And I've written you know, a few little interesting things here and there, cryptozoology, aliens, and uh, the latter is, I think, what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, I, I will also say I most recently wrote an article, or I think it was one of the more recent ones, on the Megalodon as a cryptid. And just by coincidence, yesterday we were out doing errands. Uh, we went past 12 Guns Brewing in Bristol, Rhode Island, and I noticed they have a beer called The Meg, which... Uh, Obviously, podcasts not being visual, you can't see. But if you use your psycho or uh, if you use your like, psychic uh, remote viewing, maybe some of you can read this. But the can is a giant megalodon swallowing a sailing ship. But in the background, it is a modern city, so it is kind of an interesting. I actually think this is supposed to be the Providence uh, skyline, and Providence may come up uh, in this. Uh, obviously, as the home of Lovecraft, and I'm sure I can fit Lovecraft in uh, to the Hill case. I'm happy to massage him in there <laughs> amazing and just for the record i being out in the boonies a little bit this week was not able to get my hands on you know i, I didn't have access to a vast range of novelty beers so i'm drinking o'hara's irish red ale and i am absolutely not getting into the debate about what irish red ale really is or isn't or <laughs> whether it even exists and um, better better informed people than i have spoken on this uh, recently and i'm going to stay out of it so we're here to talk about um, a recent article you did for Contingent Magazine, all about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case from way back in 1961. And I am extremely excited to talk about this and uh, about some recent primary research you've done on this and some, I think, interesting new angles we can add to the case. Do you want to briefly talk about the article? Sure. Yeah. So uh, over uh, in the, this past summer, which we're recording this in I want to say it's still technically October 2022. So back in July, I went up to the University of New Hampshire Library, uh, spent a few days there going through the papers of Betty and Barney Hill. It's mainly Betty related stuff, seeing as she was much, uh, she lived longer and she was kind of more into the UFO. And as I learned, other uh, uh, was very interesting. Uh, but for those who you know, aren't aware, I'm sure most, if not always, have a general passing view of the Betty and Barney Hill case, but they were an interracial couple who lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, Betty was white, Barney was black. Uh, in 1961, they're driving back from a vacation uh, to Montreal, stopped by a flying saucer. You know, they're taken aboard. You know, given medical experiments, Betty talks with the uh, you know aliens for a bit, and this is kind of considered the first you know kind of traditional alien abduction case, although. Uh, as I think we'll get into, there are some cases beforehand and kind of like the more traditional alien abduction tropes as we kind of know them today are as kind of essentially just out of the 1980s more than anything. And Betty and her writings also had something to say a lot about that. Uh, Barney ends up dying in 1969, so he doesn't have a lot of time. I think it's 1964 is when the case goes public and 1965, 66 is really kind of when it really starts spreading, especially with a uh, a book published about their account by John G. Fuller, uh, The Interrupted Journey. Uh, but Barney dies in 1969, but Betty lives until I think 2004 is when she dies. And she's fairly active in the UFO scene up until then. Uh, so again, that's just the general overview. And I will say, if anyone's interested in, you know, listening more since this is a podcast, highly recommend the first season of the podcast Strange Arrivals from 
I think that was 2020 when the first season came out, which heavily focuses on Betty and Barney Hill, as well as how alien abduction lore kind of develops after them. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that. I, I very much enjoyed that show as well. And it, it's a great introduction to the story. And it goes through it in a kind of beat by beat way, which is not, I think, my intention for this episode. Um, I'm kind of more interested in the the stuff that you found that we're, you know, just extra little wrinkles to add to the story, interpretations of the story. I, I will mention, I think, yeah, one of the reasons why this case is important is the afterlife of it and how it was important in changing the direction of ufology and, and you know, contributing to what eventually became what we now know as the abduction um, phenomena, um, phenomenon. <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. And also, I think one thing I want to mention is how the story as we know it today is kind of, is kind of an amalgamation of like things that the hills consciously experienced that night and then dreams that they had in the in the weeks and months following and then information that came out in the you know supposed hypnotic regression sessions afterwards and how you know the story that the way that you read the story very often now uh, certainly amongst you know uh, sources who are believers is a kind of a mas massaged version of all of these things and i suppose it's it's important to keep in mind that the story changed um, from iteration to iteration and we're going to be dipping in and out of details that come came from different parts of the story and, and and how the story was remembered and told in different ways i suppose yeah and it's yeah i mentioned also it, the the alleged abduction happens i think it's september 19th 1961 it's three years before this really becomes you know, like public knowledge uh and, you know, in those three years, they've been going to uh, a hypnotist in Boston, Dr. Benjamin Simon, who, by all accounts, is not a UFO believer himself. Uh, he, uh, As I mentioned, uh, John Fuller writes the book, The Interrupted Journey, and Benjamin Simon writes the uh, uh, introduction to it. I think in the introduction, he flat out says, you know, I'm not really a believer of, uh, uh, you know, alien abduction. Actually, I think the, it's either the first or second sentence is him saying, you know, this is an interracial couple, you know, it's a, this is a tumultuous time. Uh, this may be just a bunch of stresses from uh, 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 the stresses of being in an interracial relationship, which I think there is some degree there. And there's some interesting things, I think, to draw out about how those tensions are reflected and how they view things differently. Uh, but, uh, but in those three years, there's a lot of back and forth, which Dr. Simon notes also of how, you know, Betty and Barney are having different accounts initially, different depictions of the aliens, and even just them discussing their own cases with each other. I think there's a lot of uh, evidence that Barney's accounts kind of get uh, a bit more altered to reflect Betty's accounts. And especially after Barney dies, a lot of uh, you know, the story is in Betty's hands, which again, is not to, you know, not to accuse her of being malicious and changing anything, but it's just everyone has their, and especially you know, as it gets into the 70s and 80s, 20 years on, that's going to change a lot of the uh, uh, way that it's remembered also. And so we do have kind of just that one uh, account that it ends up getting multiplied, especially once kind of the more substantive abduction era begins. And tell us a little bit about the your, your trip to the University of New Hampshire and uh, checking out the archives yourself. So th yeah, this was my first trip back to doing any kind of kind of primary archive research really since 2016, when I'd finished doing the last of my dissertation research in the UK. Yeah, as the, I was originally commissioned to do this article for Contingent, making it about kind of explicitly about you no 
know, archival research, which is kind of why I bring up elements of that. And I've done a few small, uh, you know, trips to various museums and libraries since, but this was the first time I was going long distance, uh, uh, you know, staying overnight at a place to do research. And it did, did dawn on me, you know, like, oh, I'm driving you know, a long way through these rural New Hampshire, uh, you know, roads to get to the university. Uh, it did make, and I did drive right past uh, their uh, uh, residence in Portsmouth also. So it was kind of like, hmm, I wonder if, you know, maybe something will, but unfortunately nothing did. But I will say, you know, I was there two days. It's a university library. It was in the summer. Uh, you know, it was right after the July 4th holiday in the U.S., so the two days I was there, I was the only person in the, uh, you, you know, the uh, library's archive room, which is fine with me. But yeah, it was just me and the reference librarian. And, you know, she pulled out all the materials for the uh, Hill file. So I had them all on hand, which is great because usually when you go to archives, you, know, you take one box out at a time, you look through it, you have to return that, get the next out. But having it all there on hand was uh, you know, a really great uh, thing to have. And I was. I am curious about how many people who come to the library are looking at the Hill stuff because, again, while I was there, I think uh, the like one phone call that came into the library was clearly someone trying to get access to the Hill material. I think for a TV documentary, uh, and it's like just a few months before I went there, uh, the Discovery Channel or Discovery Plus app, I think, uh, in the U.S. had a documentary on the Hill case, and they were there in the same archive room also. So I think. The hills are a big draw, you know, much as Nessie is a big, you know, tourism draw, I think the hill materials are a big draw for the uh, University of New Hampshire, but it was, it was a good, good return back and definitely a good experience. I've, I've been in much worse archives to have to deal with. <laughs> I suppose uh, to folks like ourselves who take an interest in this stuff and, um, you know, people, people who follow this sort of material, it, it would seem obvious that, you know, it's, it's good to have this stuff collected. Um, maybe this is a weird question, but like who, who from the university decided that this was of interest and of note and to be collected or how, how did that come to be? You know, how is I, this I, case seen outside of the, you know, the, the paranormal <laughs> world, I suppose? Well, because I think what's, what's important now is this is not the, the archives of Betty and Barney Hill at the university of New Hampshire are not, you know, the Betty and Barney Hill abduction are, it's the Betty and Barney Hill papers overall. And especially before Barney died and before this got publicized, they were a notable couple in New Hampshire politics. They were very involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, I found both of their uh, uh, lifetime membership plaques in the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Uh, Barney was the head of the Portsmouth Political Action Committee of the NAACP. Uh, they helped chair uh, uh, U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson's 1964 re-election campaign in New Hampshire. They, as a result of that, they were invited to his inauguration in 1965 as part of the New Hampshire delegation. So they're very, and uh, I found a lot of letters, you know, between them and you know New Hampshire governors, New Hampshire senators, New Hampshire Congress people, not on UFOs, but all about their civil rights and political advocacy. Uh, I think after you know into the 60s and 70s, Betty was also involved in kind of like a anti-war movements also. So they're they were a big deal in the civil rights and kind of like liberal politics in the. Uh, late 50s, early 60s in New Hampshire. Uh, and so to some degree, I mean, I think that alone makes it notable, but also, I mean, the first alien abduction, this is a 
big deal. Culturally, that's a big deal. And I think these papers all got donated when Betty died, I believe in 2004. Uh, Betty's, uh, I don't think, uh, Betty and Barney Hill, they don't have direct, uh, no, they did not have children themselves. So uh, kind of like the, the inheritor, I, I guess, of them is uh, Betty's niece, uh, Kathleen Marden, who has written some books on them also. And you know, she's kind of, I think, like the steward of their legacy. I think she was involved in uh, handing off a lot of their stuff to uh, the University of New Hampshire. Uh, that that's some much needed context. Yeah, I, I was aware of so, to some degree of their kind of social activism. I, I didn't realize they would have been remembered so uh, so warmly as as important persons for that reason. And uh, I suppose you're you're making me feel like the UFO element might have been only a small percentage of the of the papers that were there. Actually, Barney's stuff, which was the like most of it was Betty's stuff, but Barney's stuff, the majority of Barney's stuff, I think is not really ufo related which again makes sense since you know he dies much earlier and he wasn't as involved when he was alive but i'd say the majority of betty's stuff in particular is ufo related and she did have the majority but even so like there's there's a sizable minority of non-ufo related stuff that was there okay one of the things i found interesting in your article and and what you've been saying on Twitter recently is so Betty lives a lot longer than than Barney and continues to be even even though this case is kind of pegged to the sixties and when we when we read about it and when we place it in context that seems to be its 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 place in history but she obviously has a long life and continues interacting with and having opinions on you know UFO researchers from later eras and the you know the changes in the in the UFO world and so. I'm interested in a lot of the things that you you mentioned about her connections to MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, uh, and NICAP. You, you mentioned that Barney was in, involved in NICAP, uh, the was it National, um, oh my goodness, Investigation, Investigation Committee, Committee on, on Aerial Phenomena. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what was what what did you and, and there's a lot of letters between Betty particularly and lots of other researchers. So uh, some of these are really interesting uh, and un, some unexpected relationships I noted. Yeah, so I was interested in because the list of uh, like what's in all these files is available online at the University of New Hampshire website, which is why some of the, I, you know, some of these names popped out. Like there are letters with Donald Kehoe, who's like the chief investigator for NICAP, uh, and you know I did uh, I found you know Betty and Barney Hill's uh, uh, NICAP membership cards are in the archive, uh, uh, but especially I think as alien abductions become a larger phenomenon in the eighties, you have kind of the big names that emerged, John Mack, Whitley Strieber, Bud Hopkins, uh, David Jacobs. And one thing that really interested me is that Betty is very hostile to, she thinks that, you know, their depictions of alien abductions are, you know, that they're misusing hypnosis that uh, interestingly enough, uh, I'm going to look this up because Kathleen Martin, Betty's niece, uh, becomes a very active MUFON member, and I think she is involved, or she is officially uh, involved in like training, uh, like MUFON. She's like the head of like the MUFON, uh, like citizen reporting uh, uh, section or something. So there's at least a period when Kathleen Martin, who's you know, essentially an extension of the Hill family, is involved with like helping to train all of MUFON members in recording alien or recording UFO sightings, which is especially interesting because by 1977, I think I'm going to, uh, I, uh, 
The other thing is, I, I will say it's not well organized, all of the uh, boxes. So I'm trying to go through, I went through like in order that they were there, but it's not very well uh, organized. Uh, I'm, okay, well, I won't take time looking at that. I'll just say, I think it's 1977 when in the MUFON journal, Kathleen Martin wrote an article about how hypnosis could be misused to kind of like reflect kind of just like the general cultural perception of alien abductions and that you know, if you hypnotize someone, you know, basically like say like, oh, you were abducted by aliens. Now explain what happened in your abduction. Even by 1977, there's such a cultural you know, understanding of what an abduction is that similar patterns emerge, which is very interesting that as early, A, as early as 1977, this was already being seen as a problem when, you know, the abduction phenomenon is very new at that point. Like, uh, and then the other big things that, you know, like Kathleen Martin and MUFON are publishing this stuff that's critical of hypnosis. Uh, but you know, in particular, uh, Betty Hill, uh, near the end of her life, she wrote an, un I think it's either a self-published or an unpublished book, uh, as kind of a follow-up to the interrupted journey and the manuscript is available there. This would have been, I think maybe 97 or late nineties, but in it, she's highly critical of, uh, uh, the abduction research of the 80s and 90s. She interestingly says, you know, alien, the real quote, aliens don't resemble, you know, Whitley Strieber's, you know, bug-eyed monster from the uh, cover of Communion, that real abductions are not traumatic experiences, that, you know, they're basically just uh, essentially, you know, I don't think she uses the term, but essentially they're abusing their, you know, the people who think they've been abducted and, you know, using them to their own ends. Uh, there's a couple of interviews where, uh, she says she you know, refuses to talk with Bud Hopkins and John Mack. There was, I think, one tense letter between her and John Mack, but otherwise no real communication between them. And so it was interesting to me that, uh, you know, this is the Ur alien abduction case, essentially, but uh, Betty becomes so critical of what abductions become recognized as, including the physical description of the aliens, uh, which, you know, this is, you know, stereotypically the origin of the greys as, you know, a cultural phenomenon of what extraterrestrials look like. And by the 80s, she's basically saying, you know, uh, aliens do not look like this. Everyone has it wrong, uh, which was just another real interesting thing to see. I suppose I'm, I'm trying to square this in my head with um, the, the evolution of, you know, what we expect these beings to be like, you know, as ufology changes. One of the points you make in your article is how one of the key things about the Hill case is that it's a big difference from, it's a big break from the 1950s contactee aliens, which is a movement where the aliens are generally very human-like. They're, you know, always tall and beautiful and they're almost godlike and they've come to bring us a message and they're here to improve, improve humanity. And their things are generally very nice for the, for the humans who get to interact with them. And this, the, the Hill case is very different because it's, it's unsettling and it's cold and it's clinical and the hills are taken against their will by these beings and treated like, you know, uh, lab, lab specimens or, or something similar like this. And yet there's also an angle in which Betty wants them to be like, not, not so much Barney who seemed very traumatized by the experience, but Betty over time seems to want to turn it into something more positive. And is, is this why she reacts negatively to the, the eighties abduction culture where again it's it's turned into something which is quite sinister i think so and it's interesting because in that way of you know, you know trying to see it as something positive she ends up kind of 
to some degree reflecting the contactee message overall. And and I think it is interesting that when she says, you know, abductions are not traumatic. I mean, it's if you listen to the recordings of Barney, it definitely, I think, traumatized Barney a lot more than it did her, which I think also may reflect, you know, certain uh, issues as well, like with uh, how race plays into it. But uh, additionally, I, I admit I went into uh, researching because I was curious about now, this is typically seen as the first you know, modern abduction case, but I was interested in thinking of it as, you know, what if we see this like as a continuation of the contactee movement and kind of contactee stuff? And I, initially, I think, though, there are a few early newspaper reports that do describe them as contactees. So I think that's just the terminology that's available to people at the time. But in Betty's writing, in her later interviews, she's very critical of the contact. She makes it very clear that, you know, she thinks that, you know, the contactees are all made up or hallucinations or, you know, she she sees them as very ridiculous and very not at all the same as her experience. So she herself, maybe Barney would have thought different. I don't think there's anything directly from him, but at least on Betty's view, you know, it is very clear that she saw this as something different from the contactees. But of course, there is also some earlier cases. And one thing that did interest me is I saw, uh, I think it was a NICAP report uh, from the early 60s about, you know, pre-Betty and Barney Hill, uh, like similar cases. Yeah, there are a whole spate of them in South America, like uh, Argentina, Chile, Brazil, and you know, late 40s, early 50s. It seems like there was a wave of kind of a, a quasi you know, abduction predecessors, which would not necessarily have been known in the English-speaking world, or at least not very widely at all known before the early 60s. But kind of the most famous one of these is Antonio uh, V.S. Boas, I think, who was a Brazilian who claimed you know, that you know, a flying saucer landed, that he was taken aboard against his will, that uh, there is, I think, this like red-headed, you know, humanoid woman, alien he has sex with. Uh, and this, again, is not really widely circulated in the U.S., uh, or rather in the, the English speaking press for years after this. I think the case happened in 1957, but when it is initially translated into English, I think in uh, late 1961, people at NICAP immediately do associate it with the Hill case and they see similarities and the Hills are you know told about it by the people they've contacted at NICAP. So it is interesting that this very early you know, abduction, quasi-abduction case from Brazil the Hills are some of the first people in the English-speaking world to know about it. And I do wonder how much that, you know, they may have absorbed some of the V.S. Boas case, especially because that's much like the Hills, a story that some of the details do change over time as kind of a more extensive translating becomes available and uh, uh, the story becomes more widely circulated. So I was very interested that, you know, A, there's that very explicit rejection of the contactees, but potentially a much closer link to the V.S. Boas case uh, and how they're both uh, circulated in the English-speaking world. That, yeah, that's that case is always brought up. And um, I mean, and for me, it's always been a little bit murky as to exactly what the timeline was and how likely they were to have come across it. I suppose for years, I, I just presumed out of hand it was obscure and because it wasn't written in English, they were unlikely to have come across it. But with that in mind, um, I said some of the power of the Hills case comes from its place in history and the idea that it was, you know, quote unquote, the first and that the the Hills were unlikely to have had much information about 
um, UFOs and certainly that they wouldn't have had access to some kind of like template story that, you know, matched what happened to them. But um, I, I, I'm aware that Betty in particular did have an interest in UFOs, maybe even going back to before the initial sighting in, in 1961. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. And that's another interesting thing because one of the things I saw in, I forget if it was an interview she gave or a, uh, in her manuscript, but she is very critical of the idea of, you know, repeat abductions. And I think this may actually have come up in a, uh, let me look, let's check through my read. Uh, yeah, this comes up in a letter she wrote with uh, uh, J. Allen Hynek uh, in as early as 1967, I think. But uh, she's very critical of people who are repeatedly abducted by aliens, like, you no. Know, Bud Hopkins uh, uh, in particular really highlights the idea that, you know, like they're like the lineages of people who are abducted and the you know, aliens will like repeatedly abduct people throughout their lives. And you know, at, in this you know, interview, Betty explicitly says, you know, like, oh, it was like just a freak occurrence. And you know, we just happened to be driving down the you know, same road that the flying saucer was passing overhead and they picked us up and it was bad luck. So it is interesting that she's very against, you know, this, you know, alien abduction is just something, you know, it's, it's, not very likely to happen, but later on, you know, she does increasingly see UFOs. She talks about how, uh, which I think is something else that was very interesting, that uh, when she was younger, like her mother would hear like people knocking on the door in the middle of the night, which Betty, some reason associates with, you know, the aliens like knocking on her like mom's door in the middle of the night, uh, which also kind of brings to mind, you know, not just the obvious kind of parallels with Bud Hopkins, but also, you know, kind of like a targeted individual type thing of the people who think they're like being the subject of you know, those unknown harassment campaigns. And I think there is just, this is beyond the hills, but I've been interested in the idea of like the targeted individual phenomenon as having a lot of similarities with uh, uh, alien abduction accounts. Uh, I don't know if I'm necessarily the one to look into that, but I think there is something there. Am I, I I'm not sure on the timeline here, but am I right in thinking that, um, Betty had a sister who had seen UFOs prior to the the nineteen sixty one sighting, or yes, had some yeah. interest. And I know Betty took like she read Donald Kehoe books about UFOs from the library. And I'm just I'm just keen if you were aware what the timeline is there. Is this like before the sighting, or is it after the sighting but before the hypnosis, or how might it have contaminated the the story? I think it was before the sighting itself. And if I'm remembering right, uh, but also she had an interest in like psychic powers and uh, like, you know, psychic uh, uh, communication, which when you think about like the idea of the aliens having these, you no know, hypnotic psychic abilities with minds, uh, that's something that I think is also uh, uh, interesting to take into account. Another thing that did come to mind when I was working on this was, you know, she several times the aliens are described as having Asian characteristics, uh, which among many other kind of racial stereotypes that, you know, like at some points they're referred to as looking Irish. Uh, in some cases, they're referred to as looking Italian. Uh, so it's there's an interesting racial component there. Uh, I think uh, later on, Betty talks about how she was influenced or she compares them to, I think, like Inuit or like uh, like uh, native uh Alaskan type peoples who have kind of like uh, epicanthic folds on their eyes, but are adjusted to cold. Betty is very adamant that the aliens must come from a cold planet. So this is one of those details that comes up. But I think specifically like the Asian, the Chinese uh, references to the aliens. Now, this is early 60s. The Korean War is not, you no, know, it's less than a decade over. 
during the Korean War, there's a lot of you know panic in the U.S. over Chinese brainwashing techniques. Uh, I mean, uh, the Manchurian Candidate, I think, comes out you know only a few months after this, which ties into that. So I wonder also to what degree, uh, you know, kind of like the issues of hypnosis of aliens, you know, having these psychic powers, kind of draws from the kind of like the panic over. Uh, uh, brainwashing, you know, communist uh, infiltration and all that, that's already uh, heavily in the air at this time. Yeah, I, I know I mentioned earlier, I'll just say again, that some of the the confused or varying descriptions of the beings is, is because of the fact that, you know, there's different iterations of how the hills interact with them. Firstly, there's their consciously remembered sighting uh, from, from the first day when I, I believe um, they pull over in the car early on and Barney gets um, a, pair, a set of binoculars out and looks at the craft and thinks he sees people or beings through the windows. And then later on, Betty starts having these dreams um, and in which the, the beings look different. And then eventually the story comes out through hypnotic regression with Dr. Benjamin Simon. And so we get these varying descriptions of what they look like. Um, and, and they seem to go from being more or less human to being clearly otherworldly. And some of the earlier iterations of them uh, where Barney says they look like Irish people or they look like Germans, I think at one point he says as well. And he, I think he even uses the word Nazi. And so it, it seems like, I suppose we'll never know for sure. And, and uh, it seems likely that these would have been people who would have been antagonistic to him during his life uh, as a black person living in that part of America in, in those big cities in the East. The Irish uh, were out frequently at odds with, the, with, with black people. Um, and also he had served, I believe he served in the army during the war. And so... The figure of a German or a Nazi would have been one of antagonism for him also. Yeah, Barney was in the U.S. Army in Europe during World War II. I saw his military discharge papers. Uh, he had an honorable discharge, I can say that. But yeah, so as a black man who you know, serves in the U.S. Army in World War II in Europe, obviously there's Nazi imagery that's you know uh, connected there. Uh, I believe ben, Dr. Benjamin Simon was Jewish also, so there's a bit of an element there. And, you know, as a Black guy who's working in Boston, uh, this is, you know, a high, there's a longstanding uh, tension in that city between you know, the Irish-American population and the African-American population. And so you can see how these stereotypes would all kind of add to the uh, kind of more negative associations that Barney would hold uh, 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 towards the aliens. Uh, and one thing I've also been interested in is uh, uh, I know that there's uh, – I'm just going to pull out a book here. You know, uh, uh, David Halperin's book, uh, Intimate Alien, The Hidden Story of the UFO. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll credit him for saying uh, – bring to mind the idea that uh, Dr. Simon was Jewish, which I would not have made that connection otherwise. But you know, uh, David in his book has a chapter on kind of uh, on the hills and talking about the parallels with like the slave trade uh, – the examination of slaves being taken onto the ship. And I think there is you no know, some degree of you no know, relevance there. There's other uh, historians uh, who I'm forgetting right now, but who have written about uh, uh, the parallels with uh, like Native American captivity stories that were a big staple of a uh, like 17th, early 18th century uh, colonial New England in particular. And so, you know, this region of the U.S. has these longstanding associations with kind of kidnapping and you no know, uh uh you no know, examinations and stuff like that but i think a more recent one or a more recent parallel specifically from the black experience of u.s life is uh 
Barney was born in the South. Uh, I think his of a, of mixed heritage. He had white ancestors. He had uh, enslaved black ancestors. I think his is either grandfather or great grandfather was a free black person from Africa, which especially at the time is not that common, you know, in the South or in the North either. But so he is from the South, uh, and his family emigrates north to Philadelphia during the period of uh, the Great Migration in, you know, in U.S. history. But in particular, during this time, there's these urban legends of uh, you know, figures called the Night Doctors, uh, which are spread by whites in the South who want to convince Blacks not to move north. Uh, and the, the kind of the uh, idea of the Night Doctor is that, you know, if you move north, then, you know, in the middle of the night, these white doctors are going to, like, snatch you off the street uh, and basically, you know, you know, carve you up, you know, do experiments on you. And this was meant to convince uh, uh, Blacks in the South not to move north because in the South, you know, they're this very cheap pool of labor and Southerners don't want to lose that. And obviously, life in the North is not going to be great either, but has advantages over living in the South. So Barney is someone who, in his own life, in his immediate family, they moved from the South to the North, they probably would be familiar with the night doctor phenomenon. And so I think there is something there where he grew up in a culture where, you know, there's an idea that if you go to the North, a risk of living in the North are these, you know, otherworldly, you know, people who are going to snatch you in the middle of the night and do strange medical experiments on you. I think there's something to the idea that this may have contributed to, especially the more traumatic view of abduction that Barney has compared to, uh, uh, Betty. And uh, I wasn't able to find anything in the archives confirming this, but I still feel like this is a strong uh, avenue to explore uh, for other researchers. Yeah. And worth mentioning that the the tapes are available. You, you can you can find them online of those, some you know, aspects of the recording of the hypnotic regression sessions. And it is very clear that something traumatic is being expressed, especially in his tapes. It's They're quite strong and quite disturbing. And uh, also of interest too is that uh, you know they I think there's a part in the uh, uh, conversation between Betty and Dr. Simon where one of them compares the lights to the UFO to police lights and you know it's not a case where uh, the car you know breaks down or whatever but the aliens they land in the street in front of the hills they set up a roadblock you know these are men with uniforms forming a roadblock in the middle of the night with lights resembling police lights. It's you can see why a white woman like Betty might have a different perception of that than a black man like Barney, especially in as well. I was going to say, especially in the early 1960s, but especially to, I mean, I don't think anything has really changed in that regard. And I think you can kind of see how that even if, you know, it's not a, even if it's not actually a suppressed memory of a police encounter, the parallels to police stoppings, I think you can see why that would factor into some of the perceptions both of them had. Mm. And for me, reading the story has always given me the, the feeling of a, a dream, uh, you know, whereby you feel like certain elements of somebody's real life and real fears and real traumas potentially are being acted out. We'll never know for sure which ones are, whether it's it's the case, just like in our own lives, we, you know, when we try to interpret a dream, we assume that some some day-to-day -day anxiety or worry is being acted out, but we'll, we'll, we'll never know for sure exactly which one it is. Um, Having said that, the like that something extraordinary was created out of, and 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 to remember that 
this story formed literally partly out of dreams, Betty's dreams in particular, in the, in the weeks following the initial sighting where she kind of started to form the story from her own from her own dreams, which she was interpreting and writing down. Yeah, and, and I mean, also worth noting as well, I think this same year that the abduction happens, uh, Carl Gustav Jung writes his uh, that flying saucers, a, a myth made real, or it's something. It's it's the last book he publishes. No, oh, Young's, Carl Jung. It's it's yes, a, call, uh, um, a modern myth of things seen in the sky. Yeah, yes, something yeah. Like I think that. that's <laughs> it's it's a long. It's, it's word modern myth is something in there too. But again, like this leading like psychotherapist, this leading you know, uh, psychoanalyst is becomes very interested in UFOs. Uh, uh, he has kind of, I think, varying degrees of uh, uh, how it ties in with, uh, you know, reality as such. But, you know, someone whose life is spent around, you know, like, to some degree popularizing the idea of like dream analysis, then spends his last works on UFOs. Uh, I think that's of interest. And notably, Young uh, himself is in communication with Donald Kehoe also. So there's even this kind of a back and forth that is happening at the same time that or at least slightly before Kehoe is getting in touch with the Hills and you know, their own attempts to interpret dreams. So I definitely think the fact that, you know, uh, you know, dream analysis, dream interpretation, hypnosis is becoming so popular at the same time that there are all these flying saucer accounts. I think it's just natural that they're going to cross over as kind of like two new cultural developments. There are some iconic images associated with the Hill case. Uh, the the drawing of the craft itself with the with the fin wings the what we what we know as the star map and then um, the Baker images of the beings themselves uh, I wonder I wonder if you could talk a little bit about seeing some of those originals I, I know it would it would give me certainly a certain frisson if I was to come across those <laughs> being as they you know I've been looking at them in in UFO books since I was a kid I mean just uh, coming across the like the paintings of the aliens themselves you know kind of like the classic, you know, and you know, they're not quite quite gray, the kind of grayish green skin. Their eyes are much closer to humans. You know, they're wearing clothes, but you know, if you're familiar with the Hill cases, you know, even uh, in the interrupted journey itself, there's kind of like the uh, uh, pencil sketching that Barney makes of a kind of Kermit the Frog looking alien. That's kind of the basis of uh, uh, the idea. But yeah, coming across those giant, and those were big paintings too. Like those were in their own special folder seeing those it was uh like it was kind of like oh my god like all of a sudden i, I turned the page and it's like coming across you know the declaration of independence or something <laughs> like well i wasn't expecting this but yeah just i think seeing the uh uh barney's illustration of the flying saucer with that you know kind of iconic uh observation deck the stubby wings coming off uh that was you know just just seeing that pencil sketch knowing barney had made that you know 60 odd years ago now that was uh, uh the basis for so many illustrations and so many books i'd you know read as a kid that really was uh, uh something else excellent uh yeah that I'm, I'm you had some connections to make to tesla and also to lovecraft i'm interested to hear those yeah so i'll start with the tesla one because this is something that is in the interrupted journey uh which does, it stuck out to me when i saw that but uh uh it's something that I haven't seen a lot of people uh, uh, pick up on, but kind of like when the first kind of news starts spreading out in 1961, that I know there was some kind of uh, uh, alien uh, 
you know, reported out sighting or, you know, people being taken aboard a flying saucer. It starts to spread through the UFO community. Uh, and in particular, uh, uh, there's some convention, some aerospace convention coming on, uh, like in Washington, I think. Uh, and there's these, uh, I think there were two engineers, but they were writing, uh, or they were presenting a paper on the history of uh, attempts to communicate with alien life. And they're including uh, uh, kind of like Tesla's claims for communicating or picking up alien radio signals, which is something he did claim happens. I think it's now believed he may have been picking up uh, signals from the magnetic field of Jupiter. But uh, again, Tesla and his connection with aliens, that's kind of become like an er staple of conspiracy theories too. And uh, there was at Amherst College in central Massachusetts, uh, an astronomer, David, uh, David Todd, David Peck Todd, I think, uh, who came up with an idea of, you know, using kind of like uh, giant balloons to lift radio uh, antennae into the atmosphere to listen to signals from Martians. Uh, so if late 19th, early 20th centuries, there is kind of this early uh, like field, like kind of like the first like 25 years of the century, this very active field of attempts to use radios to communicate with Martians at the time. And so it's these two figures, uh, who were using, uh, uh, or who are presenting a paper on kind of what we would now call steady, who then uh, like hear about the story. And I think they're the ones who pass it on to Donald Kehoe from NICAP. Uh, I will say uh, as a brief connection to kind of also segue it into Lovecraft. Uh, so this astronomer, Donald, uh, uh, Todd, Donald Peck, I'm, I'm forgetting which way his name is, but uh, this astronomer at Amherst, he had, corresponded with some of the astronomers that Lovecraft knew from Ladd Observatory in Providence. So there's that little connection there. But I found out Donald Kehoe himself has a Lovecraft connection, which again, I don't think anyone had really picked up on before. But Donald Kehoe wrote four stories for Weird Tales magazine, which for those who don't know, this is the magazine that Lovecraft published almost all of his main stories. And two of the stories that Kehoe published were in stories that or were in issues that also had Lovecraft stories. And Lovecraft, he would read all the issues, but especially his own issues. So without a doubt, Lovecraft at least knew of Donald Kehoe as an author. Donald Kehoe read Lovecraft, at least some Lovecraft without a doubt. I think that's also just, no, that's a great connection uh, right then and there. Uh, the other thing that I was really, I was really hoping to find evidence of, but I wasn't able to, unfortunately, is that in 1945, uh, August Derleth, who's the publisher who had uh, kind of taken over Lovecraft's legacy after uh, uh, Lovecraft died. Derleth puts out an armed services uh, like paperback collection of uh, various Lovecraftian stories that Lovecraft had written. This gets circulated around uh, you know U.S. soldiers stationed in France, and actually this is seen as a you know these stories then get read by French people, which is part of the reason why. Lovecraft kind of gets a serious reevaluation in France, even before the United States. So these armed services publications of Lovecraft include, you know, some of the stories that involve, you know, like people getting like, you no, know, their brains taken out by aliens and flown into space or, you know, ideas, you know, the government rounding up alien hybrids and putting them in, you know, you know detention centers or, uh, uh, you know, alien objects crashing into New England. So I did make me wonder, you know, did Barney read this, you know, Lovecraft anthology that was circulated around the U.S. Army at the exact time he was, I mean, unfor I, 
I didn't, I wasn't expecting it, but I really would have loved, you know, to find some letter by Barney being like, oh, this reminds me of that book I read in the army, you know, you know, 15 <laughs> years ago, but I, I wasn't able to, but I still think, you know, I, I don't think it can be discounted that that may, there may be a little tiny seed, maybe, who don't, you know, I keep the dream alive of that, but that the finding the Kehoe Lovecraft connection was kind of like a very mind blowing uh, uh, thing. And since then, I've, you know, there's another article that came out over the summer in uh, the Crypt of Cthulhu publication that mentions uh, one of Lovecraft's close friends uh, was a uh, poet and artist in uh, California named Clark Ashton Smith. In the mid 1920s, Clark Ashton Smith sees this giant black cylindrical object flying overhead. He writes about it to Lovecraft. Lovecraft is like, oh, that's that's really weird. I don't know what that was. I mean, you know, cylindric, cigar-shaped, you know, black UFOs, that's that's ahead of his time. So Lovecraft did, you know, have a friend who, you know, we would have to say saw a UFO, uh, which also is kind of interesting in retrospect. I've always presumed Lovecraft would have hated the UFO phenomenon if he'd lived long enough to see it being as he saw himself as the kind of a... An, an arch skeptic of such things. I, I don't know if well, that's. No, well, we do actually have an account of Lovecraft as a UFO debunker uh, in 1909 on Christmas Day. Uh, so again, uh, you know, in the like late 1900 or 19th century, early 20th century, probably many of your listeners know this, but just you know, there are these waves of uh, what are called like the phantom aircraft, mystery aircraft sightings one of which was in late 1909, early 1910, centered in New England, uh, the supposed the Wallace Tillinghast airship. Uh, but Lovecraft writes about in several letters over many years that Christmas Eve, he's in downtown Providence. All of a sudden, you know, the crowd of people go, look, it's Wallace Tillinghast airship going overhead. Look at that bright star. It has to be, you know, Wallace Tillinghast aircraft. And Lovecraft said, oh, I looked up and it was just Venus overhead. So right, right off the bat, you could argue Lovecraft is there at a UFO sighting, at a mass UFO sighting, and he kind of pioneers the, no, it was just Venus, you know, that's all it was, it was just Swamp Venus. So. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> so I'm, go I'm going to make a seek now, I'm going to say that the um, the, the idea of uh, Lovecraft's work being available in France and influencing French writers, of course, leads us to the book Morning of the Magicians by uh, Paul Wilsonberger in 1960, which is a key source or relatively you know early, well mid-century source for ancient aliens ancient astronauts ideas which kind of is is, is like a, a side a sidestep from alternate archaeology which is something that betty hill uh, had an interest in as i believe you found in the archives yes i mean not just an interest in uh, alternative archaeology but she was interested in what at the time was called ancient astronauts uh one of the things I saw on the website of the university listing was like letters with a uh, correspondence with Eric Von Daniken. Uh, when I saw that, I was just like, oh my God, this is the mother load right here. I can't, I get there, I look through it. And basically Betty had written Eric Von Daniken a letter. Uh, unfortunately, the copy of the letter itself wasn't there. And in return, Eric Von Daniken had sent her a form letter, which is just like, oh my, like, did he realize or or more accurately, did his secretary, you know, realize, you know, but no, just, I mean, you have to wonder, you have to think that Von Daniken didn't know uh, that, but also kind of maybe is of interest to like early seventies, uh, Betty and Barney Hill probably weren't as big names at the time. So it is kind of an interesting relic where, you know, if it had been maybe a few years earlier or a few years later, arguably Von Daniken may have just been like, oh yeah, that's a, uh, I got to respond to her. But I think it, 
maybe she wrote like just at the time when her own you know story was kind of at the nadir but interestingly there are a number of uh uh people who are members of the ancient astronaut society that do write to uh betty hill and they they commiserate over uh carl sagan they're like yeah carl sagan sucks doesn't he yeah so, <laughs> but so that's an interesting uh uh development too uh uh, but yeah, in terms of alternative archaeology, she was very interested in this site in uh, uh, Salem, Massachusetts, uh, not say or so Salem, New Hampshire, not Salem, Massachusetts. That's a, a coincidental name called Mystery Hill, uh, which was termed such, I think, in the 1930s. And it's one of those things that I think most archaeologists agree is like a colonial era site or press, but it got transformed into like, you know, evidence that the ancient Celts came here, you know, 3000 years ago, and it's this mysterious, you know, white outpost and all of this stuff. And interestingly, there is a, a Lovecraftian connection to that. Uh, in the 60s, uh, I think some guy proposed that uh, kind of like the stone circle and uh, the Dunwich horror was based on Mystery Hill. But I don't, I think it's main, it's widely considered, I don't think that's really the case either. But there, there is was that attempt to kind of link that to Lovecraft. But uh, Betty goes to give a talk at Mystery Hill. Uh, I've learned from uh, David Goodsword, who's written a number. I think he wrote like uh, Ancient Stone uh, Relics in New England. I think that was the name of the book. But he's mentioned that, uh, uh, I guess, uh, the publicity, uh, or the PR figure uh, who was in charge of uh, like publicity uh, for Mystery Hill was also uh, Betty's personal publicist. So interesting, a guy promoting both areas of that uh, uh, <laughs> uh, alternative views there. But yeah, it's not only just uh, was she interested in this kind of uh, you know, pseudo archaeological archaeological slash like revisionist history site, uh, but you no, know, she's very interested in psychic phenomenon. Also, there's a few like uh, uh, psychic uh, like associations that she gave talks at you know, in the 70s. I was able to find you no know, letters from a few articles uh, were about like, you know, like why psychic powers are connected with aliens and stuff like this. And so she, I guess uh, what Jeb Card would call the puffed, the paranormal unified field theory. Uh, she was uh, uh, an example of that. Uh, you know, one weird thing attracts another. You know, I was being too polite calling it alt archaeology. It is, it is, <laughs> is pseudo-archaeology. That is, yeah. <laughs> I'll put that out there. Um, I mentioned something called the star map earlier, and maybe we'll just clarify um, what that was. And was that something that you were able to find in the archives as well? Yes, I, I found several drafts of the star map. And again, for people who you know, aren't familiar, uh, part of Betty's story is that when she's on the alien ship, uh, First off, she's given this book, you know, she basically says, like, no one's going to believe me. And one of the aliens hands her, you know, a book. And I was like, here, take this back. And then kind of like near the end, the alien leader is like, what are you doing? Give me this back. I'm like, what do you think you're taking our book with you? But uh, so connected with that, one interesting thing was uh, I found a letter from Stanton Friedman, who uh, is, you know, well, probably best known for his, you know, promotion of the Roswell story, but was also involved with uh, uh uh, the Hill case. And he ended up, he co-wrote a book with Kathleen Martin about the Hills, uh, maybe about like 10 years before he died. Uh, but uh, this letter from Stanton Freeman suggesting that, you know, based on uh, the symbols Betty had written, maybe uh, the aliens who had given, maybe the alien book that she had been given was similar to the Voynich manuscript, which is this famous kind of like pseudo, uh, or it's 
quasi hoax book and that possibly, you know, I don't think it's doubted that the Voynich manuscript is a book from, I think it's the the 17th century, but possibly was just a hoax book at the time. Uh, and there have been also connected with Lovecraft, a few efforts to claim that, you know, the Necronomicon was influenced by the Voynich manuscript, which again, I, I don't think is really the case, but funny to think of that. But also besides this, you know, book that is, according to Friedman, linked to the Voynich manuscript, there is also a star map that Betty has shown. You know, she famously, you know, asked the aliens, like, you know, where's your uh, home star? And, you know, they point out, you know, where's Earth? And they go, I don't know. where You, you tell me where Earth is on this map. And, you know, okay. But then, you know, under hypnosis, she tries to recreate the star map. And then uh, uh, her illustrations are published. Uh, and then in the early 70s, there's a uh, amateur astronomer named Marjorie Fish, uh, who then decides she's going to recreate a 3D model of the star map and try to match it to actual uh, uh, known stars. And she believes she actually is able to do this. Uh, notably, a lot of her observation, or a lot of uh, the calculations and observations she uses for stars at the time are later revised, so it doesn't quite stick. I believe later on, Marjorie Fish also like basically admits, like, yeah, I, I was wrong on that. Uh, but uh, because of this, because of this, she believes that she's identified the alien homeworld as the star system of Zeta Reticuli, which of course becomes, you know, now long-standing, just accepted part of UFO folklore that the Greys are from this actual star system of Zeta Reticuli. I suppose I want to carefully delve into a murky topic on this and just get your own thoughts on it, which is the the origin <laughs> of the Greys a little bit more and. In, in many um, descriptions of the evolution of how we came to the concept of the alien gray, and I, I know I've I've done this myself, you know, a, a common take on it is that you, you have the creatures as described by Betty, and then you have the TV film adaptation in 1975 called The UFO Incident, where the greys are kind of more inhuman. They're these short, bald beings with big heads and, and big eyes. They're not quite the modern gray but they're a step in that direction. And then in 1977, we get Close Encounters of the Third Kind by Steven Spielberg. And you're pretty much at the point then when they are the modern greys. And then it goes into overdrive in the 80s and 90s with uh, Whitley Strieber and Communion and the X-Files. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts or ideas about this um, after looking at this material. Yeah, I mean, it it is interesting that Betty herself reflects several times, like in both uh, her second manuscript and in a number of her letters and interviews, that the depiction of the greys that emerges in the 80s is a product of uh, people kind of basing it more off of the interrupt or uh, uh, out of the UFO incident and not out of like her actual memories and description. And so, you know, again, as I mentioned, by the like late 80s, She's explicitly saying, you know, like the cover of communion is not what the aliens look like at all, uh, which also is kind of interesting because it seems like she is accepting that, you know, like there are aliens visiting the earth. You now, there is one species of aliens visiting the earth and they look, you know, a certain way. And, you know, Hopkins aliens, Strieber's aliens are not it. And so there is that kind of interesting uh, connection. But in her manuscript also, what really interested me is she's very... Uh, emphatic that the aliens are from a cold planet and so their physique is a result of them evolving in this cold climate but she specifically says that the aliens are what humans are going to look like in 25,000 years and so she is 
drawing this connection to uh, kind of like, you know, the idea that the greys are the, you know, the future of the human race, kind of more evolutionarily evolved from us. Although, you know, 25,000 years is not that long in <laughs> evolutionary terms. And again, you know, this is kind of tying back to kind of like the Ur greys from HG uh, uh, Wells's Man of the Year Million. And you know, even in the 90s, you know, this is kind of a popular trope that the aliens, you know, were once like us, but they had evolved into this form and therefore they kind of need our DNA to help, you know, rejuve, you know, they need our, you know, youthful blood to revitalize their dying race, which also is kind of you know, a very Victorian era trope that's resurrected in the 80s. Uh, uh, connected, well, actually, uh, well, th there's some other stuff I can say about that, but I mean, that, the idea that she is buying into both, you know, the greys, quote, as they emerge are not the real, quote, aliens, but also buying into this kind of like evolutionary path that emerges. I mean, it's it's frequently been observed that prior to the 70s and 80s, you know, the way aliens were depicted in in science fiction media was was vast and and many many there were many different takes on this and and it was a very wide range of creatures, you know, maybe typified by you know the Frank R. Paul covers of you know amazing stories magazines and every kind of crazy creature you can imagine and it, it's not until the 70s and the 80s that we we kind of arrive at this presumption and assumption that you know the gray is the standard take on this um and I, I for a long time i was very influenced by the article entirely unpredisposed which is martin kottmeyer i think writing for mm -hmm. magonia magazine ultimate originally in the in the early 90s and he posits you know he says well there were things that were like proto grays in science fiction going back through the 20th century, 19th century. And there are many of them that we could point to. And a lot of them are like, yes, maybe, who, I don't know. Um, you know, it's possible. We just don't, we don't know who read what or who was influenced by what. The one I, I'm getting, I'm starting to feel like my, my take on this is changing. I'm starting to feel like we're kind of cherry picking a little bit by looking back at the past and saying, well, these were the creatures that mattered and these other ones didn't. But one thing I can't get away from, and you've just referenced it, and Betty has just said it, so to speak, is <laughs> the, the Darwinian take, the evolutionary take, the idea that, you know, we expect the aliens to be like us, but futuristic. And to go back to H.G. Wells, even in, in War of the Worlds, even though his Martians in that book don't look like greys, the concept, the, the you know, the concept of the creatures in War of the Worlds is that they are entirely brain and their bodies have wasted away. And so this was a very Victorian idea of how we saw ourselves as being still important after Darwinism has removed, you know, the religious take on, on, on history and, and prehistory. And so the idea that, well, we're important because of our brains, therefore in the future, we will become all brain, our bodies will become frail and you get the gray. It's just, it's, it's the same idea. And, and when, when I take away all these other potential maybes from culture, I'm left with that idea, which I, I think may, might be the core of it. Yeah. And one thing that it was interesting too, is that in her article, like the articles and stuff, it's also articles that uh, you know Betty had collected over the years. There's a lot of stuff by uh, Stephen Jay Gould, you know, the evolutionary biologist, and there's a lot of stuff by Dale Russell, who's kind of like a speculative uh, uh, evolutionary guy, who's probably best known for something which I think he ended up regretting creating was the dinosauroid, uh, which you know <laughs> the idea, you know, if dinosaurs hadn't gone extinct, would they have evolved into you know a human form and uh, this is an idea he develops in the 80s. Uh, I was just listening, I think it's uh, the the Paleocast podcast, I believe, which ha 
had an interview with Will Tattersdale about the dinosauroid, but he made the comment, which I hadn't you know, really thought of before, but Dale Russell is coming up with the dinosauroid in the uh, 1980s. The dinosauroid is uh, you know, this humanoid figure. It's kind of a short stature, has a big head, no hair, large eyes. It's not a coincidence, you know, arguing the dinosaurs would have evolved into the greys if their evolution hadn't been interrupted. Yes. Uh, and, you know, Dale Russell himself, he's also very interested in SETI. So you have that connection as well. But that's that's something I hadn't even thought of before that, you know, this this kind of, you know, funny idea is even then connected with, you know, kind of justifying the greys as a quote, like, you know, logical, natural endpoint in evolution. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I remember listening to that. And yeah, I, I noticed that as well. And something I think yourself and Bill Black pointed out on the Impossible Archive, and now this was a year or two ago, um, which I hadn't thought of, but I, I thought is is logical and 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 interesting, is that the the modern grade, the eighties grades, who need humans for their reproductive programs because they are, you know, they're decadent and waste. Their energy has been spent. They can't reproduce themselves, so they need our youth and our vitality and our evolutionary prowess to perpetuate their lineage is nothing but an updating of the victorian hg wells era the dying martians trope the yeah. martians <laughs> on mars who whose planet is is past it and they they don't have water or they don't have air anymore and so they have to build the canals and they they're now at a point where they need to come to earth to steal our resources you know the the 80s grays is an update on this as well and, and you guys made that point i thought that was very interesting and you do have like in the 80s or 90s like the this no not necessarily a mainstream quote mainstream view amongst you no know, alien believers but i remember seeing you know kind of a similar argument that, you know aliens are actually just you know humans time traveling from the future and you kind of had that kind of like closed loop argument about uh like the quote nature of the grays uh but speaking also of abduction accounts not necessarily uh with uh the grays as such but Betty was very aware that, especially after the UFO incident, that was going to inspire a lot of copycat uh, like uh, reports and that a lot of the 80s abduction reports probably are more influenced by the UFO incident or just the general knowledge of Betty and Barney Hill's encounter. And she specifically says that like, you know, outside of like, you know, before kind of the copycats get started, that there are two other abduction accounts that she considers as genuine like abductions. One is the Pascagoula uh, abduction from is that Mississippi or Missouri in Mississippi, nineteen seventy three. So she considers so that's one that she considers to be a genuine abduction account, which is interesting because as I, as at least as I recall, I don't think the aliens in that account are remotely gray, like which is interesting. Uh, and then the other account that she says is kind of a genuine account is Travis Walton of a uh, fire in the sky fame. Which is kind of funny because I think it's generally accepted now that Walton was pretty much inspired by the airing of the UFO uh, uh, incident, which was only a few weeks before his own abduction account. So the fact that she's like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, these are the two genuine alien abduction accounts before people started copying, you know, us. One of them is, in fact, a, uh, pro you know, generally accepted copycat uh, case. But it is, you know, she is saying, uh, there's, there are genuine abduction accounts, but they're just very far and few in between. And one of them involves these like boxy robot aliens, you know, almost like stereotypical, like, you no know, beep beep 50s stuff. 
they, they if i recall they had a spike for a nose and spikes for ears and <laughs> yeah. elephant like yes. feet or something like that yeah again, again it's it is important to remember how varied you know these encounters were prior to the dominance of the gray that's that's what i find so interesting and that's why i keep delving back into the history to see if i can figure out how this happened and when it happened um, is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to mention from your uh, your readings of the archives? I will say one of the one of the more interesting correspondence I found there is with a guy named Valery Sanarov, who is a Soviet anthropologist, which is interesting because he is one of the few Soviet researchers who was and he he didn't publish a lot, but he did publish some aspects of you know UFO and alien research in Western news or Western journals in the 70s and 80s. So uh, this is, you know, it shows that, you know, even across, you know, the Cold War boundaries, the Hills story became known. Uh, he, I think she tried to mail him some stuff and kind of the Soviet mail censors, uh, you know, picked him up out of, so I guess, according to him, uh, the Soviet authorities would confiscate any UFO related stuff being sent in the mail from the West, which I don't know. I've, I'm not sure about that because you, if one would assume if that really was the case, they wouldn't let Betty Hill's, you know, postcards go through in the first place. So I, I there's a, uh, was it a, a, our strange skies podcast? They had an episode on like Soviet, uh, like UFO stories. I, I forget. Now, I'm forgetting when it was. I, I listened to it over the summer. Uh, actually, I think when I was driving up to go to the uh, Hill archives, but like this one thing is it, it is just really difficult to, get a, a firm handling of what exactly the UFO scene was in the Soviet Union, because you don't know what is just being made up, what's being, you know, sent secondhand to the West, what's being sent by UFO people as deliberate misinformation to the West. So it is just really hard to figure out exactly what the UFO scene was. But interestingly, uh, you know, this researcher, Sanarov, he mentions that, you know, there are contactee cases in the Soviet Union there are some abduction accounts in the Soviet Union, which is interesting because kind of the the official story I'd always read is that up until you know at least you know the very final years of the Soviet Union, there's not really widespread UFO or abduction cases being reported. But this is a guy who was a Soviet UFO researcher, and at least according to him, there were a number of abduction cases in the Soviet Union. I think that's room for a lot of research at some point. I don't know how or who, but someone I think uh, could do a lot of interesting stuff there. Yeah, it makes me wonder what he might have been reading or what he would have had access to read about you know yeah. the, the abduction situation in the West. So this is the, the Hill case, clearly one of the seminal cases in the history of the subject. Um, did, did you, do you have any final thoughts? Did this make you think differently about the case in any way? I don't know if it made me feel differently about the case, but it was useful to get a... Uh, uh, a kind of uh, more more insider view, especially of Betty. And I think one of the more touching things uh, I did read uh, was uh, there's some letter where Betty was describing uh, the, the last day that Barney was alive. And, you know, she mentions how there was like a snowstorm in the morning. So they both, you know, took the day off of work and they had this second breakfast and they went out in the snow and you know, they were playing like, you know, pool in the evening. And then, uh, you know, he had a, a stroke, I think, and, you know, the people in the ambulance knew him and were joking with him. So it was, it was a very sad, just hearing about this kind of like last day they shared together. So it, it, it did help me, I think, see a more kind of internal human life of them. Uh, 
but yeah, it's just, uh, I, I would have loved to have met Betty, you know, missed her by a few years, but I, I, I think it would have been nice to at least, you know, get the chance to meet her once in person. But I think I get a bit of a better sense of her as a person from going through the uh, firsthand sources. That feels like an appropriate place to leave it. I will put a link to the contingent article in the notes. Um, and where would you like people to find you on your work online? And what would you like people to know that you're up to? <laughs> Just, uh, you know, checking out my Twitter. <laughs> my my website's still in development. Uh, I thought for sure this summer was going to be it, but uh, maybe, maybe next summer. I, don't I think by this point, it's been in, a work in progress for around two and a half years now. So you figure at some point I'll finally get done. But yeah, my, my Twitter is where anything interesting comes up. Uh, you know, I published that. Uh, uh, I had a, a long uh, Twitter thread over the summer of uh, uh, just kind of like posting in real time interesting stuff I found uh, from the Hill archives. Some of that got put into the contingent article. Some other stuff didn't. So it's worth uh, checking that out as well. Uh, my current work. Uh, so I think the first time I was on uh, uh, this podcast, I was discussing my uh, Woolly Mammoth article, and I just sent in the final. I you know over the summer I found a home for it uh, in an upcoming journal, uh, Aristea. I sent in just a few days ago the final uh, version of that article. So hopefully in the next few months that mammoth article will finally be seeing the light of day. And there's some pseudo archaeology stuff in there as well. Uh, some vague UFO related stuff in terms of kind of American Western myths. But yeah, so that'll that'll be coming out somewhere someday soon. Uh, and yeah, uh, summer of 2023, uh, When the Stars Are Right, H.P. Lovecraft and Astronomy by myself and Horace Smith. Very excited to finally have that come out. Uh, I'll say I think the manuscript was 399 pages long. So uh, I think hopefully it'll be worth the wait. <laughs> Yeah, all exciting stuff. I'll be very happy to promote all of that as it comes out. Uh, this has been a tremendous treat. I've been looking forward to it for a while, and uh, I knew I knew we were going to get something special. So huge thanks for your for your time and your expertise. My pleasure. Always happy to always happy to wander back into the cabin in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, I, I can find my way back too. All right. <laughs> And that's it, folks. You find me back at the hill, still cold, still finishing my can, uh, still shivering a little bit, and uh, still no UFOs, but I guess that is just how it goes. So once again, huge thanks to Eddie Guimont for coming on and talking. Always a pleasure. I learned loads of things I didn't know about the hill encounter, and I hope you enjoyed it too. Do I have a little bit of housekeeping? I have a tiny little amount, yes. So... As I said at the top, you can support the show over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. And thanks to Stellar Blue Galaxy, who did so recently, um, and, and also said the following. Just finished the episode on Bram Stoker's Dracula and loved it. That's from at least maybe two summers ago. Um, about ten years ago, I took a master's class on late Victorian horror featuring Dracula. And this episode brought back many pleasant memories of that time. I agree that Van Helsing is a sinister figure. Note how he disfigures Mina when he tests her with the communion wafer as opposed to marking her in a less conspicuous spot. So that's a reference to the episode I did with Victoria Pearson about uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula film. And being as Halloween is not too far in the past, yes, I did watch it again this year as I tend to at that time of year. And um, I, do you know why I had a slightly harder time with it this year? 
but it's still one of my favorites and it's still a bit of a kind of a, a camp gothic classic i think what else do i want to say i want to say thanks to oliver franklin anderson who got in touch over on twitter where i am at strange ireland and said sent me a video about something called stoat swarms and says have you ever come across anything about stoat swarms in england i have a memory of finding a book with a collection of accounts about the phenomenon but cannot find anything about it now online and the video didn't work for me anyway so i said do you have any other uh, sources for this and oliver said I cannot find a single mention of it anywhere. My best guess is that it was from a paranormal compilation book published in the 70s or 80s. I got from the library, perhaps sourcing Charles Fort. Um, But I do remember that there were multiple historical accounts that were included in the entry. The one that sticks out in my memory was a man, I think, in the 1700s being driven up a tree on a walk in the countryside by a massive horde of hundreds of hungry stoats. I half remember that it occurred during drought years or winters following uh, drought years. Not super helpful, but something to look out for. So, listeners, if the phrase stoat swarm means anything to you, if that twigs some Fortean memory in the back of your brain, I'm interested. I'd like to know more about this. Get in touch in the usual places. Twitter, I'm at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, I am white underscore Atlantic underscore weird. Find us there. And until next time, as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by 